This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Paul Miller, professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. They discuss the rise of Christian nationalism in America, the tension between Christian nationalism and traditional liberalism, and how this movement stands at odds with our fundamental American values. Paul Miller, welcome to Reaganism. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Now, you're a professor of practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and a co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Concentration. Had a fantastic set of professional experiences in the world of foreign policy and national security prior uh, to that role uh, on the National Security Council, analyst at the CIA, military intelligence officer in the Army. We're here today to talk about None of that, Paul. We're here to talk about your new book, The Religion of American Greatness. What's wrong with Christian nationalism? Uh, congrats on the book. Yet based on the bio and background I just offered, it begs the question, Paul, why did you write a book about Christian nationalism? So I have spent, I have spent most of my career in international affairs, and uh, and then I write this book on Christian nationalism. A lot of folks kind of ask me this question or a version of it. What's the, what's the connection? And I actually think there is a pretty natural connection. At least there was in my in my thinking and in my in my heart. I spend a decade or more thinking about America's role in the world, and you can't really have that conversation unless you have an idea in your head about American identity, about what it means to be an American, what America stands for, what, what America is, and. Around about 2016, uh, the debate on those questions became more sharp in our country. And I came to realize I didn't fully understand that debate. And I wanted to dig into it, get those answers straight in my head for myself. And this book is really a reflection on those on those questions. What, what does it mean to be an American? What is the nature of the American experiment? Good. So you've created the nexus between the Paul Miller, who I've gone to know over the years as a national security and foreign policy expert and the author, Paul Miller, writing about Christian nationalism. Uh, and as you shared, it was 2016, election of President Trump, and asking these really, you're right, important questions is that to understand where American interests are, to advance American interests in the world, you, you should have a solid foundation in terms of what America stands for it is. Um, many people think about 2016 in the form of you have – the forgotten part of America, the part of America, the 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 blue collar American Trump voter, uh, neglected by the so-called elites and establishment. These are kind of the the words people use to describe what happened in 2016 uh, and what led to President Trump uh, being elected uh, by Republicans and Democrats and people who just didn't participate in the political process at all. But you seem to come at it at least in part, through thinking about Christian nationalism. So two questions. Tell me why Christian nationalism was where you landed as you thought about where America was uh, during 2016, and, the, and, and of course, it, it, it stayed with us. And then in the context of that second, uh, explain what Christian nationalism is. Yeah. 
So I think that first narrative you gave of the 2016 election isn't wrong. I agree with all of that analysis. Uh, I think it's one, that's one layer or one angle on the election. Uh, the Forgotten Man, it's a uh, working class backlash against globalization, all that. There is a, a cultural element to that same story where there, the, the very same people you're talking about uh, tend to profess Christianity or call themselves Christians. President Trump very much understood that. You look at his campaign rhetoric in 2016, and uh, in a lot of his campaign speeches, particularly in the South and, and in the Midwest, he aimed his campaign directly at American Christians. And he said, as many candidates do, trying to speak the language of Christianity, but he was more explicit in saying it's not about Christian principle. It's about Christian power. Uh, he said, I want to put Christians in charge again. I want to restore your power. Your power has been taken away, and you should be running things, and I will be your tool for putting Christians back on top. That's why I think there's this, another layer. It's not just about economic dislocation. There's some cultural, religious uh, 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 change and anxiety going on. So that's why I think it's a relevant and a um, it, a, 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 a helpful thing to, to add on to the analysis. So, so the question is, you know, what is Christian nationalism? You know, I, I start out by saying the question here is, what does it mean to be an American? I think a nationalist is somebody who looks at their country and defines it primarily by a cultural heritage, a cultural heritage. In America's case, a, a Christian cultural heritage. Um, more than our creedal identity, our creed of liberty and equality. A nationalist is one who puts the culture over and above as more important than our creed. In fact, what the nationalists would say is that the creed follows from the culture and that we won't have our liberty and equality if our predominantly Christian cultural heritage withers away or changes too much or, or, or goes away. That's, I think, the nationalist take on American identity. And it's, you know, nationalism or Christian nationalism because it uses the language of Christianity to say that that's what it means to be an American. You have to, even if you're not uh, doctrinally or theologically a Christian, you still have to conform to this Christian cultural heritage or template. A couple of questions, just context for our listeners and viewers. Again, we're with Paul Miller, author of The Religion of American Greatness. Let me ask you this or just a context for our, our listeners, you come at this as, as you write in your book, a Christian, evangelical. So almost from the very community, at least that's the way it read to me, that President Trump was, was speaking to, at least in terms of theological community. Um, yeah. And you're trying to, I guess, you lay that out to explain that you're not hostile to Christianity. Right. Yeah. And that's a helpful thing to start with. 81% um, of white evangelicals uh, voted for Trump in 2016 and a, a pretty close similar number in 2020. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's my, my, my family, my friends, the folks in the pews where I go to church. I'm, I attend a Southern Baptist church and uh, voted uh, Republican all my life, all, all the way up until 2016. Um, so I, yeah, I am very much writing about sort of my community, my own uh, heritage, if you will. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I'm hopeful that the book being written from a kind of an insider's viewpoint is a, a, a loving reflection on the ways in which some American Christians have perhaps not, in my view, not rightly understood the relationship between our Christian identity and our American identity. I'm both of those things. Uh, I love America. I am a Christian. Uh, but I, I think it's important to understand that there's a, a careful distinction to make between those two layers of my identity. So as you're outlining uh, 
Christian nationalism before, it seemed to be that you felt that it was not a, you know, it's kind of distinct from patriotism, you know, nationalism versus patriotism. Where is this kind of notion of a Judeo-Christian ethic informing our, our, our national culture? Where is it appropriate and, and worthy of promotion? And where does it cross over in your mind, Paul, to the sort of Christian nationalism that you're wary of and, and explaining has carries this, this danger? My goodness, we're, we're only 10 minutes in, you're already diving to the hardest question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a hard question because, look, uh, I'm a Christian and I'm politically engaged and I vote and I vote on the basis of my values. Is, is that Christian nationalism? I don't think it is, but if 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 you think that that's Christian nationalism, okay, then I'm a Christian nationalist and I got no problem with it. We we all are going to vote and engage in politics on the basis of our beliefs and our convictions, and that's fine. I don't object to religious believers advocating for the things they believe in. Um, for Christians, you know, listening to this and wondering the same question that you asked, I kind of suggest uh, uh, maybe three sort of litmus tests to guide our voting behavior. Yeah. And maybe this is really for any religious believer. You know, number one, um, when we kind of bring our, our values into the voting booth, is the effect of it going to be discriminatory? A uh, hundred years ago, American Protestants, following their values, thought that it was really important to exclude Roman Catholics from public life. And that was very high on their list of values that they were championing in the public square. So I think that's an example of how to do it wrong, right? When we vote our values, we should do it in a way that does not disadvantage or disenfranchise or treat unequally any of our citizen, fellow citizens. Second litmus test, we should be aware of the legal and administrative practicality of the things we advocate. Um, once again, 100 years ago, I'm thinking about prohibition. Uh, American Protestants led the charge to pass the 18th Amendment to the Constitution and ban sale and transportation of alcohol. And it was a, you know, people very sincere in their beliefs that alcohol was damaging the nation. There was a problem with alcoholism. And yet prohibition was a really big mistake. It led to gang warfare in American streets and created a black market and all that. Uh, and so we had to undo it. So sometimes our values are just, we can't translate them directly into the criminal code. And third test, uh, let's make sure that we understand the difference between championing our values and and uh, and imposing or preaching our theology uh, on the platform of the government. Um, I think there is a rightful distinction that we should draw between the jurisdiction of the church and the jurisdiction of the state. Uh, I'm glad, actually, that we don't have prayer in public schools. I know that's kind of controversial among a lot of Christians. They, they want to see prayer in public schools, but I think it's important for the church to jealously guard its prerogative to to lead things like prayer and Bible study. That's the church's role. I don't want Caesar. I don't want the secular state involved in the business of teaching the Bible. That's just not their role. You never can trust what they're going to teach when they do that. So rightful jurisdictions, it's an important thing to keep in mind. So uh, a couple of followers, a super helpful construct. And I can imagine listeners or viewers say, well, I can agree, I agree with that maybe, but, but don't agree with that. Right. Like I could, I could uh, uh, agree that, there could be uh, certain religious values that is not the place of government to impose or 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 think about the limitations of the, the state to do so. You know, prohibition is a pretty persuasive one, but others who feel like uh, are uh, in the absence of allowing for prayer in public schools, we're advancing uh, a secularist 
uh, culture uh, in, in our schools that mm-hmm. in the day is, is leading to society that is not just godless, but, but, but counter to, to believe. And so that, that also, if you're not engaging and you're not present, then something else is, is, is actually uh, uh, putting forward a value that, that is counter to where, not just where one's personal beliefs are, but where you think is best for the country as a whole. So, so you started this discussion and th- reflecting on 2016 in terms of advancing principle versus advancing power. And uh, I think that was one that perhaps one of the speech of Donald Trump that kind of set you off that he wanted to, you know, get Christians, Christian nationalists back in power. So talk a little bit about the place for principle and why, and, 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 and the limits of the power that, that, you know, should, should find itself in our institutions. Well, um, I'll, I'll put it this way. As a Christian, I think that the rule of law is a, is a Christian value. It's not distinctively Christian. Lots of other people advocate for that, but I think that the rule of law is important. And I think that as a Christian, Jesus talked about the golden rule, do unto others. And in a sense, democracy itself is kind of the golden rule institutionalized in politics. I will recognize your equality under law because I want you to recognize my equality under law. I recognize your right to free speech, your right to vote, because I want you to recognize the same for me. So if you just take the golden rule, and then you say, all right, let's do that in politics, you end up with something kind of like democracy, the rule of law, and constitutionalism. And I, I believe in those things because I am a Christian, but I also recognize lots of other people believe in the same things, just coming at it from different angles. And that's what makes America function. That makes our experiment work, is that we can come to a similar agreement on our basic public philosophy on the Constitution, uh, but we don't all have to share the same background, philosophical, theological uh, uh, frameworks to justify it. Um, So yeah, I'm going to say the Christians should advocate for the Constitution, advocate for the rule of law. Those are good Christian values, and rejoice with the fact that non-Christians also share those values. I don't know if I answered your question at all, but there's... That that, kind of seems to be a way that uh, a check against uh, perhaps a, you know... The, the power being done in a way that is to exclusion of others. If it's, if it's a value, if it's a value you seem to be saying that can be expressed and others can, can join, then it, then it seems to pass your test here for uh, how Christian nationalism or Christian values uh, can be expressed and applied in a way that's acceptable in, in, in your construct. Uh, but going back to this idea of what, what, what got you concerned and, and focus on this in terms of how Christian nationalism was being advanced in 2016, you know, that was a reaction to something too, Paul, right? And right. I think quite sympathetic. And, and certainly here at the Reagan Institute, you know, President Reagan was was very much cared deeply about how religious values and the values of Americans that were informed by religion were being marginalized um, and and undermined by what Reagan and, and 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 others have said, emphasizing this different language over the years, essentially by the left, secular left, the left that that really wanted to uh, weed out any semblance of of establishment of religion, right? And I, I I'm mindful of the constitutional language I've just put forward um, in a way that, as I referenced earlier, really was undermining the educational 
um, priorities of parents and public school that seem to be overcorrecting. And so uh, you could listen to what President Trump was saying in 2016 and simply saying, I want to bring balance back. Now, you don't usually hear that word balance uh, associated with President Trump. But, but, but in this issue set, he was trying to restore the balance. And, and, and that would be intuitive to me why Christians, evangelicals, or otherwise would be supportive, right? Because that's what people care about. They care about their kids' education, yeah. their, their freedom to go, uh, you know, religious freedom, prayer, uh, living their values, living the life they want to lead that increasingly felt the state was hostile to. And, and that sentiment, you know, it was shared, I imagine, certainly by Christian evangelicals, but many uh, religious people um, across the country. I'm Jewish, practicing Jew. Many in the uh, Orthodox Jewish community, uh, and 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 not limited to the Orthodox Jewish community alone, felt that that was an important effort to restore the balance. All right, so I've gone on for three minutes here. You get where I'm going. Give me your counter to that. Tell me how you accommodate that uh, perspective in your in your critique of Christian nationalism. Yeah, look, it's a fair question, and I, maybe I need to kind of step back. And, and kind of lay the groundwork of the debate that I have entered into with this book. You, you do have the what I'll call the progressive left and what they stand for um, and uh, the way it has. I, so I would agree with President Reagan, even with President Trump, in their critique of the left. Uh, I don't think the left has the solutions here. Not a progressive. Don't vote for Democrats generally. Um but I think that the solution that Trump has put forward is essentially fighting fire with fire. If you got a problem with the left and its illiberalism uh, and its, I think, actually intolerance, well, you should look at what I've done in the book is kind of turn the attention rightward and say, look, the emerging nationalist movement on the right is just the reverse, the mirror image of that on the right. Uh, it is another form of illiberalism just cloaking itself in the language of the political right and the language of Christianity. Uh, and so because I oppose the left and I oppose its illiberalism, I also look rightward and I also see another form of illiberalism there. I, I, I should maybe note for the uh, the viewers, the listeners, that this book I've written is actually just volume one of a trilogy. This book is rightward facing about the problems I see on the right. And I wrote that book first because you want to look at the plank in your own eye right. where you point out the speck in the other. But book two is about the left. So just give me a couple of years. That book is coming. Um, I'm no no fan of, of the left's agenda, and I agree with the critique of it that people like Reagan and Trump have offered. Uh, but I do think that the the nationalist movement is the wrong solution. In, a, in fact, it is a, a cure worse than the disease or as bad as the disease. I think it makes the disease worse. Uh, I, I think the progressive left, the nationalist right, are symbionts, uh, parasitical symbionts. They feed off of each other. And they use each other's extremism as an excuse to be extreme themselves. And they, they're they tearing the country apart. They're growing further and further apart because the nationalists, they say, just look at those crazy progressives and how crazy they are. And I'm like, yeah, they're, they're kind of crazy. But then I look at the right and I hear the left say, look at those nationalists. They're so crazy. And yeah, they're right. They're kind of crazy. And so I don't want to vote for either camp. Uh, I want to say there's got to be a better way of good old-fashioned I'll call it classical liberalism or uh, a republic or small R republicanism. I believe in the open society and I wish we had a political party that did. So classical liberalism, of course, is, is, is where you're comfortable. And, and, and in your book, you outline, Hey, this has been uh, a framework that has allowed for these values to advance. It made the United States a place that 
provided for the the freedom and religious liberty that uh, Christians, evangelical Christians, not uh, any uh, faith, a person of faith uh, could could live a life uh, and and raise a family and advance uh, that 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 are true to their religious values. But of course, the critique would be, Paul, that you know that that has over the years. Um, when losing losing ground, and so yeah, you'll write your next book, a- explaining you know how how the challenges posed by the progressive left, and the, what we saw from um, Christian nationalism was was in perhaps overcorrection and fighting uh, fire with fire, which which you advise against. What's the most egregious example that you would point to, Paul, of this? I mean, it wouldn't be, I assume, you know, the the campaign to get originalists. Uh, Appointed and confirmed in our courts, a big accomplishment of uh, the, the Trump administration. Yeah. Uh, nor would it be, I believe, uh, the the push to get governors to really restore the balance in our public schools and have uh, uh, parents have more of a say uh, involved in 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 the curricula and in the school, even some of the uh, establishment uh, clause cases that relates to educational institutions. So we're, you know, those would be examples of where, you know, it seems to be something that conservatives uh, are 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 interested in advancing. I've uh, been have had some successes since 2016, and don't seem to me, you know, would, would look at it and say, hey, this is there's a concern here. This is this is uh, a toxic for for our country, and 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 not the approach we should take. Yeah. So one of the things that's a little frustrating about Christian nationalism is it often is more evident as a um, attitude or a stance or a, a viewpoint than it is in policy specifics. Uh, often the, the Nat, you, know, you go to the NatCon conference and they're a little light on policy specifics sometimes. Um, I fully support the the judges and uh, parent uh, involvement in public education. I think those are great things. But maybe here's a few examples. Uh, I don't oppose the originalists, but you're familiar probably with uh, Adrian Vermeule and his uh, new proposed school of jurisprudence on, I think he calls it common, common sense constitutionalism or something like that. Um, I would oppose that. I think that is a way, as a Trojan horse for smuggling in nationalist principles into a, a school of jurisprudence. Um, another example, again, school of prayer. I think it's good to keep that out of the public schools. Third example, I recall uh, a candidate from the U.S. Senate, uh, Josh Mendel, I think it was, who in his campaign, he didn't win, tweeted his opposition to Afghan refugees settling in America. Okay, so we got Afghans fleeing the Taliban, Afghans who were with us over 20 years fighting the war, and Mendel tweets and says, we don't want them here, they will undermine our Judeo-Christian heritage. So immigration, right? There's re- there's valid reasons to propose uh, restrictions on immigration. In my book, uh, in my second book, I wrote in favor of a border wall, but uh, because they undermine our Judeo-Christian heritage, that's not one of the valid reasons. So that is very clearly Christian nationalist reasoning, and I think that's uh, wrong. No. So you, you seem to be uh, focusing on the nationalist side Uh of them. I mean, it's, it's, it's the Christian, you know, the, the Christian side is the values 
but the national sign seems to be the tactics, the way of speaking, and it's my own kind of uh, way of, of of thinking about this. And certainly, nationalism, of course, has always been uh, kind of what what Isaiah Berlin called the the bent twig, and this notion that it could easily uh, lead to uh, outcomes that that are are filled with racism and hatred and division and the sort of thing that you know leads you down the road to you know, totalitarian uh, regimes. But on the other hand, uh, Paul, we, we, we have religious democratic states all over the world, right? We have Muslim states and Christian states. We have one Jewish state. So in that respect, they're all nationalists in character and religious nationalists in character. And, and you know, some, uh, you know, fall short of what we would aspire to, but, but, but so does the United States from time to time. How do you accommodate space for these uh, religious nation states? And, and um, you know, how does it relate to, to, to kind of where your book is, is coming out? So in the United States, we have what a lot of scholars have called a civil religion. It's the, the pageantry of our public life. It's the traditions and ceremonies we celebrate on the 4th of July, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving, I think they're great. And I think sometimes people on the left kind of look down their nose at uh, civil religion as just um, bread and circuses for the rubes in, in middle America. And I, I actually, I, re, I think that's wrong. I think it's important to cultivate that civic liturgy and those ceremonies and traditions. And oftentimes some religious uh, rhetoric overlaps. And I want to take that on a case by case basis Sometimes it can be unhelpful, but by and large, I think it's generally harmless when you have religious expression mixed in with patriotic celebration. Uh, again, case by case, it can sometimes cross over the line. That's what I'm comfortable with. You invoked religious states around the world. I would really not want us to follow the example of the United Kingdom or the Netherlands or the, or the Scandinavian countries with established churches, because by the way, those churches are empty. Their established churches have led to a hollowing out of religion. Uh, scholars on this are pretty pretty agreed upon that established churches do not promote religiosity. Uh, they promote an empty civic religion. Our disestablished church leads to more authentic, real, uh, enlivened religious lives. And so that that's a good thing. I also definitely don't want America to follow the model of Islamic countries where they enforce Islamic law as secular law. I think that's just plainly a violation of the First Amendment. Um, so I, I'm very happy with our kind of ambiguous and fluid nature of our civic religion that allows uh, lively religion, public displays of religion. Again, it does sometimes maybe cross the toe over the line, but I think it's generally the better way to do things compared to other ways around the world. We're here with Paul Miller, author of The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? You referenced earlier uh, the NATCONs, the Nationalist Conservatives, and said they're, you found them to be light on policy. They're really advocating the form of Christian nationalism, at least the way I understand you, uh, in, in their discussions. Of course, they don't self-identify as Christian nationalists. It's Nationalist Conservatives, which has been in the conservative movement uh, for, for, well, for kind of the whole time, right? It's always been this element, as, as you point out in your book. Um, talk to us about who the NatCons are and, and how you view them and 
uh, where they fit into all this. So the National Conservatism Conference was uh, first organized by an Israeli scholar named Yoram Hazoni, uh, who wrote a book in 2018 called The Virtue of Nationalism. And he's been one of the most uh, foremost and articulate, I think the best spokesman for the resurgent nationalism around the world. Uh, and when I say best, you know, I disagree with him, but I think he makes good, strong arguments and his book is worth engaging with, unlike many other books on nationalism. And, I've, and I engage with his book quite a lot in my own uh, He's been joined by many other scholars and writers and pundits and and and, and statesmen uh, who kind of follow in this broad, loose category of nationalism. And Hazoni is very clear. He says in his book that a nation should be defined by a shared language or religion. Those are his words. Uh, and that America, in his view, America is defined by a Christian heritage, a Protestant uh, work ethic and uh, the English language and things like that. And uh, Samuel Huntington said much the same thing in, in his last book before he died. And I'll just say, you know, I agree with them as a matter of history. That ha that certainly was true of America in the past. We definitely were defined by those predominant cultural influences. No problem there. They seem to think that history is destiny, that you have to stay that way. Nationalism strikes me as an effort to freeze frame our culture, to prevent change, to say at some point in the unspecified past, we reached the full expression of who we are as a people, and we're not going to be different than that. And I just want to be open to change. Uh, I think it's actually quintessentially American to welcome the possibility of change and fluidity and cultural newness. Uh, that, I think, is is important for America, but really around the, around the world. We don't want to close our doors to the possibility that tomorrow might be better. I think it's actually a very Reagan-esque attitude is to say, let's be open to what good things may come tomorrow. Well, I mean... We'll get to Reagan-esque in a minute because there is definitely focus on the future, but also rooted in the past, and 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 that was evident throughout uh, Reagan's time in, in public life, and certainly on this issue set, which I'll get to in a second. But I think Natcons would say, not only and they make the argument about how America was founded a certain way, that the state should have be rooted in certain values. And it's entirely appropriate for them to advocate for those values today, right? I mean, so you, to me, it's it's this, the, the advocacy side of it uh, is not simply just to be beholden the, by the past for the sake of, of the past, but actually it's the assessment of this group that these are keys to successful future too. And as a result, there's wisdom in the past and we should advocate for it, which, you know, is a, is a, is a kind of a framework, a mindset that is very common with believing people's uh, Christian yeah. or otherwise. You know, I think we, I think we should, I think the, the government should advocate for the constitution and the declaration. We should absolutely advocate for the values that we as a society are defined by. And I think we're defined by the creed constitution and the declaration and the ideals embodied in them. So when I, when I advocate for state neutrality and all that, we don't have to be neutral towards our own core values, but I mean the constitution and the declaration. I don't mean uh, uh, the values of a Judeo-Christian cultural heritage. That was a really important part of our past. It is a very important part of our present, and I trust it will be a part of our future. But I don't want to enforce that at the point of law. I don't think the government should be in the business of tilting the cultural playing field and saying, this is who, we, this is who you have to be to be a true, real American. There's lots of Americans who aren't. And, okay, we're back to where we were a few minutes ago, which is, you know, it's going to tilt one way or the other, right? Uh, in the app because of of other forces uh, that 
that come in and are constantly wary of it tilting towards Judeo-Christian ethic or some religious ethic. But if you if you tilt if you don't if it's not tilting there, then it's tilting to some sort of secularism or, or progressivism that is offensive uh, to many in the religious community and certainly uh, those in, in conservative circles, which is which is the dynamic we seem to be kind of coming back to. Uh, and it's I guess it's a it's a, a question, uh, Paul, of of tactics and approach in, in, in your mind. Yeah. Well, so what you're touching on is the constitutional doctrine of viewpoint neutrality. Officially, right now under law, the, the government and all its agents and all the public schools are supposed to be neutral towards religion, viewpoints, ideology, and not advantage one group for believing the right things and disadvantage another group for believing the wrong things. That's supposed to be the way it is. A lot of folks on the right are concerned that the public square has effectively been taken over by a kind of a progressive religion, and uh, we've been crowded out by insisting on neutrality. So the nationalists are ready to give up on neutrality and say, it's impossible, let's just fight back, fire with fire, take over the public square, abandon neutrality, and impose our values, our Christian values. I am not that cynical. I think that neutrality is mostly possible. And to the extent it's possible, we should absolutely uh, uh, try it. Um, the, the solution to the progressive takeover, and, and I do agree that there's a troubling trend there, the right answer is to reaffirm real neutrality and real uh, viewpoint neutrality as the government's supposed to do. Right. And that does mean, I think, pushing back against the progressive left, absolutely, but not at the not imposing our way, because that just sets a legal precedent that will be used against us the next day after the next election. If we take over the government and push our opponents out of the public square, out of the schools, out of the libraries, guess what they're going to do after the next election? We cannot go down that road. We have no country if we go down that road. Yeah, yeah. No, so I, you know, the, this the neutrality that um, you, you, you're referencing, I don't want to kind of descend in some kind of discussion around you know constitutional law and and um, and kind of if we talked about uh, freedom of religion, establishment religion, and and that and that tension there, Paul. But um, I, I do think that what what many conservatives uh, and religiously motivated minded uh, conservatives would say is they're just trying to actually, as we talked about earlier, re restore that balance. Um, originalists come back and tell you exactly what the constitutional standard was. There was definitely overreach on the part of the courts as, as advocated by uh, uh, appointees, democratic appointees to the courts over the years, think of the Warren court and otherwise that, that, that things have gotten kind of off, off kilter. Um, and so, you know, what you say, nobody would want to fight, you know, reasonable people would want to fight fire with fire. Uh, but, but in terms of uh, restoring kind of, let's talk about uh, a healthy uh, uh, notion of what the establishment cause means, some people would find that as, well, that's fire, right? And, yeah. and, and so, that balance, you know, so, so one person is fighting with power, another person will be restoring balance, I guess, is, is the way I think of it. Well, you okay, you're touching on the establishment clause, and I think this yeah. is an important part of the of the debate, is what exactly constitutes our religious freedom and, uh, and the establishment, disestablishment of our churches. Um, there's a narrative on the right that w of, of decline and fall, that things used to be great, then the 60s happened, and now it's all terrible. And um, look, there's a lot in our culture that has changed that I don't particularly like. So I recognize the truth behind that decline and fall narrative. But on when it comes to religious freedom, the narrative is, is exactly backwards. 
100 years ago, we actually didn't have religious freedom in this country. We did have Protestant uh, supremacy. Uh, Roman Catholics, Jews, uh, atheists did not really have religious freedom in America 100 years ago. We now have more well-established religious freedom in American law, in law, than essentially ever before in American history, thanks to the last two, three decades of religious freedom juris jurisprudence. So, what do you mean? I, I like, give me an example. You meant that you know they didn't have religious freedoms. They they kind of give me an expression of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the South Carolina Constitution expressly forbade Roman Catholics from holding public office. Right. Clear up until like the 1950s or 1960s. Uh, that's a pretty blatant example. Um, and it, you know, the, similar kinds of disadvantages were given to other religious minorities. Religious discrimination was, you know, you had these examples, right? Yeah, ex exactly. And the and the public schools were actually Protestant schools. The whole reason we have a parallel Catholic parochial school system in America is because the Catholics were driven out of the public schools in the 1880s with the Blaine Amendments uh, that were pretty anti-Catholic motivated to get them out of the public schools, and so they created their own and their and their great schools. Uh, the state of Oregon in 1922, passed a law banning private schooling and banning homeschooling, mandating that all school children go to the public schools. They did that because they wanted to shut down the Catholic schools and they wanted to mandate that everyone go to the public, at the time, public, basically Protestant schools. And the people who were the strongest allies for that movement was the Ku Klux Klan. If you remember, they were as anti-Catholic as they were everything else, anti-everything else. Uh, and so the the Catholics went to court against the Klan and against the progressives in Oregon, and they won. And that court case is why we are allowed to have private religious schooling in America today. And I thank God for that. I'm so glad that the Protestants and the Klan lost and the Catholics won. Uh, I send my own kids to a private Christian school today, and so I'm very grateful for that precedent. Uh, good examples there. Paul Miller, author of The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism?, Let's talk a little bit about Reagan's approach to this. You referenced it earlier. One that comes to mind for me, and I'm sure you have your own, is uh, about 40 years ago, President Reagan delivered one of his most well-known famous speeches, uh, the Evil Empire speeches, is how it's known, and famously uh, called the Soviet Union the Evil Empire, uh, noting that we had to address the Soviet Union for what it was and the diplo speak and equivocation and accommodation was not going to help the United States, was not going to advance peace. And so you have to begin by calling out the Soviet Union in the terms of, of what it was in Reagan's mind. It was this, this evil empire, immoral and the like. The that's the second half of the speech. The first half of the speech was actually a treatment of the United States. Uh, and looking and evaluating the United States through a moral lens and, and clearly a religious lens. And, of course, in 1983, he was giving this speech uh, to the National Association of Evangelicals in Orlando, Florida. And he pulls from de Tocqueville, actually. It was kind of interesting. and has his own riff on it, and it says, effectively, uh, for America to be great, America must also be good. And here Reagan was doing at least three things. He was calling our founding good, our, our, our institutions and founding documents good. That is, the, the, the nation, though it has its original sin and slavery and imperfections, it fundamentally was kind of bending towards goodness. And then he felt the American people were good and should continue to uh, evaluate themselves and believe themselves in terms of this goodness, countering kind of the prevailing narrative 
the 60s and 70s, which he encountered when he was governor in California. But this moral lens, religiously driven lens, was the way President Reagan spoke to evangelicals in 1983 and, of course, was used for here, as I've, I've outlined, both in the way to, to speak to Americans, approach our domestic policy, but, of course, also was a was almost the 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 baseline the foundation for uh thinking about and 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 speaking to soviet union and and, and so this was was also the way he was dealing with uh some other area of your expertise as well this uh nuclear weapons and the nuclear uh kind of zero movement as it was uh, emerging give me your take on that paul and and of course your your broader take on reagan uh where uh, religious outlook and belief really did inform his brand of conservatism and, and, and was a part of his presidency. Speaking with a clear moral language is not Christian nationalism. Speaking with moral clarity is not Christian nationalism. Calling the Soviet Union an evil empire is truth, not Christian nationalism. Today, calling China an evil empire or calling Russia evil for invading Ukraine is not Christian nationalism. It's just truth. I think it's actually important for statesmen and stateswomen to speak with moral clarity and simplicity, because that is a language that all people understand. And uh, and again, that's not Christian nationalism. Um, Reagan uh, called America to be good. And just as a side note, that's actually an apocryphal quotation. De Tocqueville never said that, but most people you know, continue to attribute it to him. Um, it's, it's, it's good for our leaders to call us, uh, to have a moral aspiration, to, to call us to the better angels of our nature. Uh, and so to say that our Constitution is good, as amended, to say that the Declaration is good and embodies good principles, um, to say that our history ha is the story of us aspiring to ever greater heights of goodness in, in living out our creed, I think all of that is is good and appropriate. Um, perhaps Reagan sometimes walked the line uh, of Christian nationalism. He did take the oath of office on, uh, on, on a Bible opened to uh, Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I don't particularly like when people use that verse as applied to America. I don't think that's appropriate. Um, but I'll also note this. In his 1980 speech, accepting the Republican nomination for president, uh, he spoke about our moral, our moral power or the, the need to cultivate our, uh, our, our sense of goodness. He concluded the speech by saying this. He says, can we doubt that only a divine providence placed this land, this island of freedom here. If you just pause the sentence there, it sounds a little Christian nationalist, right? The divine providence gives us the land, but here's how he finished it. Only divine providence placed this land here as a refuge for all those people in the world who yearn to breathe freely, Jews and Christians enduring persecution, the boat people of Southeast Asia, of Cuba and Haiti, the victims of drought and famine in Africa, the freedom fighters of Afghanistan. He was he clearly had an expansive vision of what America was in the world and who could be an American. Anybody who yearns for freedom and comes to this land and lives under our constitution can be an American. That's not Christian nationalism. So it's got to be expansive. It's got to be inclusive. Uh, and certainly not limited to a particular uh, denomination of Christianity and the like. Uh, I imagine if we had a NatCon, if we had Azoni on with us, he might uh, take issue and say, well, we don't mean to exclude anyone per se. 
either um, as long as they are law abiding and support the, those founding principles, um, which of course is tied to our, our, you know, any becoming a U.S. citizen and the, 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 the kind of the test to become a U.S. citizen, but we'll have to wait for that opportunity another time. Uh, Paul, before we go to our lightning round, we started this conversation talking what, what, what drew you to right on this subject it was 2016 and president Trump. Here we are uh, years later, we're in uh, year three of the uh, Biden administration. How kind of potent are these forces in your mind and, 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 and the, the voice and place of Christian nationalists? Donald Trump has not been in the white house for some time. Um, my sense is that you still think that uh, the Christian nationalists are so very active and, 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 and dominating force within uh, Republican party and conservative politics. Do I have that right? And kind of where, where, where does this reside? Cause it's no longer at the, just simply with Donald Trump. It's hard. I don't know that I have my finger on the pulse. Uh, so I'd love to hear your view or, you know, others. Um, I do note that Trump and his allies have lost the last three elections they lost in 2018, 2020, 2022. Uh, that it's, they've got to run out of steam if they keep on this track record. I also note that um, the rhetoric is still quite. It could popular. be a, a president who's going to be 86 or, you know, the end of his uh, term might run out of steam first, but go ahead. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, the rhetoric is still popular on the right. It's still the fundraising tool of choice, echoing this kind of, um, uh, uh, attitude or stance or understanding of America, thats it's still kind of par for the course. So I don't think we've seen a fundamental sea change yet on the right. But I, I guess I'm a little hopeful that because of the uh, electoral outcomes, uh, that that maybe the, the right, which is really a coalition between nationalists and conservatives, old-fashioned conservatives like me, maybe there'll be a recalibration of where that coalition, uh, how, how it comes out, and maybe there'll be a bit more conservatism and a bit less nationalism going forward. Let's go to our lightning round. This is where we ask all our guests to share their favorite book on president Reagan, favorite Reagan speech and favorite Reagan quote. Paul, give us all three or just two or one. What do you have? Uh, I'll mention a quote and two speeches. Um, my first memory of world events. So this, this will show you how old I am was, was the challenger. Uh, and so his speech after the challenger was probably the first thing I ever heard Reagan say, or at least consciously heard him say. And so that one has always resonated deeply with me. Uh, his point to hawk speech uh, for the, the boys of Normandy, point to hawk uh, is also just a fan fantastic, not just piece of rhetoric, but it was also uh, a, a message to the Soviets. It was a Cold War uh, reaffirmation of our alliance with the free world. Uh, so that uh, has always held a special place for me as well. Favorite quote, comes from his Westminster speech in 1983, uh, 82. Uh, he said, freedom is not the sole prerogative of a lucky few, but the inalienable and universal right of all human beings. Uh, I think he was absolutely right about that, which is why I quoted it in the book. Uh, and I, I would love for the, uh, the right to define itself again by that sentiment. Paul Miller, congrats on your book, The Religion of American Greatness. Thanks for being on the show. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much, Roger. I enjoyed it. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Thank you.